Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with, and I have Ellen McGirt. I have said that so many times over the past few years, and I've never been here with you, and now I am here with Ellen McGirt. I am literally next to Alan Murray right now, and I don't even know what to do. I'm so happy. <laughs> this is this is the ultimate sign that we are coming out of the pandemic. You and I sitting in the podcast room at Fortune Headquarters, which hasn't been used in 14 months. Oh, my Lord. When I joined the podcast already in progress, we were just at the scariest part of the pandemic, the part where we were shutting down and just didn't know what was coming. It all seemed scary. The one thing that I could count on besides your steady hand (laughs) at the company and your steady voice behind me was I could still get groceries. And groceries and getting groceries were such a big part of the pandemic experience, which is why I'm really excited about our guest on Leadership Next today. He's Vivek Sankaran. He is the CEO of Albertson's Companies. And for people who don't know that, Albertson includes lots of grocery stores, what, 2,200 grocery stores that people use on a regular basis. All over the country, wherever you are in the U.S., there's an Albertson store near you. I know Balducci's is near you. I go to Balducci's. Acme also. Ac- Safe, Safeway was a long time. Safeway, Vons, Shaw, I mean, all over the place. And when I think about food and I when I think about comfort and I think about fear and I think about difficult times, These were the people who are at these grocery stores and in the distribution chain who were really the frontline workers. They were facing the pandemic head on. They never went home. They had to be out there because we had to eat uh, and they had to reinvent the way they did things to provide social distancing, to do more at home delivery, to do curbside delivery. So super interesting conversation ahead of us. You know, Alan, I had never spoken to him before, like you have. And so I was really impressed with what we talked about, the complexity of what he had to solve for, the the fear, uh, the, the vulnerability of all the people that work for him. Yeah, I don't think you would normally, prior to the pandemic, you would have thought of running grocery stores as being the most exciting or the most difficult job in the world. But after the pandemic, it looks pretty challenging. I agree. And the other thing I really liked is that it is possible for you to be a cashier or a, or a food bagger and end up in leadership ranks at Albertsons. Like that's actually a thing that happens. And that was a very nice thing to hear about. All right, that's enough lead in. Let's dive in. Vivek, I want to take you back to the beginning of the pandemic because for so many of us and so many of the CEOs we talk to on the show, the current uh, obsession is, geez, we went through this great social experiment. Everybody went home and now they're coming back and we're trying to figure out how to make that work. You run grocery stores. Nobody went home. Right. You had to power right through, you know, never got to close for a day. You were providing us all with food and it was such a dramatic place to be. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what it was like. I was 10 months into my tenure as CEO in March of last year when, when the country closed and we were trying to learn what this pandemic was about. And in March and April, it was all about this fog of the pandemic that we were in. But we knew a couple of things. One, that we found a sense of purpose, right? We had to be there to feed at least the communities that we operated food and everything else, cleaning supplies, et cetera, were so essential. So we focused on that. To do that, though, we focused first on the safety of our people. I obsessed about it, Alan. Even before 
the CDC would come out with the recommendations. It took about four to six weeks for people to catch up and provide recommendations. But we provided sanitizers and masks and whatever was necessary. And so that was our first focus. And what we found is when people felt safe operating and working in our stores, they made our customers feel safe. Right. So <laughs> that was the sequence of things we did. And what's fascinating is, you know, I wish we could continue to bottle that and keep it. We moved at mm-hmm. a, a, with some speed and s- some degree of abandon to do things quickly, right, mm-hmm. at that time, which I think made us more competitive. So it was this odd combination of incredible empathy and compassion on one end and just a competitive fire on the other end, because that's what we do. Give us a couple of examples of some things you were able to put in place across your stores that gave you an edge. Alan, we went into cleaning protocols immediately. And so we had people visibly cleaning the stores. We put plexiglass up immediately in front of every cash register. In certain markets, we contained the number of people who could go into a store. And oddly enough, even though that was a bit of an inconvenience, it gave people a sense for, hey, we care. And uh, even though we didn't understand exactly everything about the disease, we care enough and we were trying to do what we knew at that point in time. We provided hand sanitizer. You know, it's interesting. We were running out of hand sanitizer that we couldn't buy it. And one of my supply chain colleagues, he found hand sanitizers in big barrels. So we turned one of our bottling lines that bottles our soda and our seltzer and converted it into a bottle sanitizers. And we put wow. that in stores so people could use it and keep it going. It was decision-making that was so focused on safety, speed, and keeping the country supplied. You know, it strikes me grocery store employees hit a cross-section of somebody who's vulnerable and yet vital and often ignored. I was wondering what those kinds of conversations about your employees were like inside Albertsons, because I, I bet they were lively. I bet you were really thinking it through. Look, let me put it this way. We operate in communities. We occupy space in the community. We employ from within the community, and we serve that community. And in the toughest of times, we want to be stewards of those communities that we operate in. And there is an element to that about making sure we have the supply and provide excitement in the store and all of that. But there is also a big element of doing the right thing in those communities. And that can be when a hurricane hits, being safe, but being the last to close and the first to open. When a pandemic hit, which we had no experience, recognizing that hunger is a problem and moving monies to solve that problem. We spent $260 million last year towards hunger in our communities, right? It wasn't a debate. It was just the right thing to do. It's about recognizing that we can live, even if we're not perfect, we can live diversity and inclusion every day with the associates we have, because they should represent the communities and treating everybody who walks in with dignity and respect. And so we can live that every day. So we don't have to talk about it. We live it. I think this being local, being part of that community and feeling a sense of responsibility for that community, if you get that mindset, I think what I've found in our company, certainly, it motivates all the right behavior. We talk a lot on this program about the talent pipeline, about making sure that there is no barriers for success and progress. And I'm curious if you can see a path forward for the wonderful person who is stocking the produce and a path forward for them to get to the C-suite. Have you, are you rethinking the way that leadership works at Albertsons? Uh, Ellen, a lot of our leaders, uh, I'm an exception actually to the rule. A lot of our leaders began working on the store floor. Many of them were baggers, they were checkers, they worked on the floor. 
By the way, it's very typical in retail. You'll see that, and you certainly see that right. in our company. What we're spending a lot more time on is making sure that we are ensuring diversity as you go up those paths, right? If you go into our store, the associates in a store will largely represent the community that we are operating in, and you'll see that. But as we go up the management ranks, the diversity decreases both on gender and ethnicity and color and so on. And so that's where we're putting a lot of energy to make sure that we're ensuring there's enough of a pipeline, we have the right slates, we have the right panels doing the interviews, the right metrics, the right training, uh, and creating the right context of inclusion. And that's where we're putting a lot more energy. To me, that's the real challenge. You know, And we can harness what we have about uh, appreciating frontline becoming senior senior leaders. So Vivek, let's talk about what's happening in digital and delivery because it's such an important part of the grocery store equation. And I'll tell you personally, I mean, I, you know, when the pandemic first hit, I told my wife, I'll, I'll go to the grocery store. You don't have to do it. I did all the shopping. It's not an Albertson store. I won't tell you whose it is. But, you know, I did it for a month or so, and then I said, you know, I don't have to do this. And I discovered Amazon and Whole Foods and started ordering everything from Whole Foods. There wasn't an Albertson. There's a Balducci's not far from me that I go to sometimes. There you go. Which is great. I love it. But I did it because of the convenience. You know, it was just so easy to get on that Amazon app and order my groceries and bring them in. Probably paid a little bit more, but it was simple. How have you been able to take advantage of that? desire to just stay out of the store altogether? The pandemic is a tragedy, no question about it. But it was also a dislocation in our sector. And when a dislocation happens, it creates opportunity for companies like us. You know, competitors try to move into that space. E-commerce, which was picking up in a store or delivering at a home, uh, was a massive opportunity for us. And we scaled it very quickly. We were behind in that particular side of the business. And this pandemic, in some ways, just massively accelerated the opportunity for give, us. Give us. Yeah, give us some numbers to give us a sense of that transformation. We were in less than 400 stores where you could pick up product. We call it drive up yeah. and go. So you order it online and pick it up. So when we finished last year, we crossed 1,400 stores. And we'll be 2,000 wow. stores by the time we finish this year. So it was a rapid expansion geographically to provide that capability and service to uh, customers. And I think that's become a central part of many households' shopping behavior. So the pandemic was a catalyst for that business and a nice opportunity for us to turbocharge it. Vivek, has the pandemic made your company a better company? No question about it, Alan. I tell investors all the time, the Albertsons companies coming out of the pandemic is significantly stronger than the Albertsons companies going into the pandemic. And by the way, the numbers will prove that out, whether it was top line growth, market share, profit flow through, the growth of e-commerce, all of the capabilities that we have changed, have made a step change to. And I also say, if this was a baseball game, we are in the second or third inning of our transformation. Mm-hmm. We've still got more room wow. to go. The pandemic was an accelerant. It, while it was a, a terrible thing for us as a country and the world, for businesses like us, it was an accelerant to do those things that you know, we did things in a year that I, I tell you, I mean, I reflect on, we'd have taken the time, we'd have taken two years, three years to do it. Right. There was no choice. We just had to go. And it's amazing that we have the capacity to do it that quickly. I 
I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is CEO of Deloitte U.S., and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Joe, thanks for being with us, and thanks for your support of our second season. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. So, Joe, one of the surprises we saw in 2020, in the midst of a lot of bad news, was some good news, an acceleration in the adoption of digital technology. Do you think that's going to continue once the pandemic goes away? I do, Alan, and I would say that the cause for optimism is warranted. There are going to be some pretty significant dividends that come from the massive acceleration in all things digital. And as we move into a post-pandemic world, we're going to see significant benefits to the economy from the big digital transformation investments that companies are making. I think we're going to see big benefits to people in terms of quality of life as we see new models for working that allow greater flexibility, greater productivity. So on the whole, I'm pretty optimistic that there's a path out of this and that as we emerge, that there will be some bright spots, albeit coming from a pretty dark moment in time. So people were forced to innovate in 2020 because an extreme change of circumstances was forced upon them. But can they keep up that pace of innovation? Well, that's the challenge for all of us as leaders. I saw a great quote in one of your interviews recently, Alan, that in this period of time, change was free because the alternative to change was even worse. We all have to look back on the way in which we moved so quickly, we broke some glass, we didn't let corporate bureaucracy get in the way, and it actually benefited all of us significantly and leverage that mindset going forward to act more quickly, to be less inhibited by risk and to see the true benefit of embedding digital transformation and an agile mindset within the way that our organizations operate on a go-forward basis. Joe, thank you. I wanted to ask about your sustainability efforts. We're starting to talk a lot more now that we're not in panic mode quite as much as we were before about how we're going to come out of this better, stronger, cleaner, whatever that looks like for you. And I know you've been thinking about this. And I mean, you've been in packaged goods and foods for a very, very long time. How are your sustainability efforts going? And how are you thinking about that? We've always had commitments and made a lot of progress on many different areas, reducing energy usage, committing to less plastic in all our private label brands, uh, responsibly sourcing seafood, et cetera. So there's a number of programs that we've had and all the things we do for our communities And to me, we've got that frequency and that set of initiatives that we are proud of. What we're doing this year is stepping back to frame. We've done a materiality assessment and we're stepping back to frame how we can be even more focused. So go bigger on a fewer things where we can make a difference. How can we make a difference on climate change? And how can we make a difference? What is our contribution to climate change? What is our contribution to food waste and circularity? What is our contribution to community impact? And what is our contribution to diversity, equity, and inclusion? Those are the four platforms that we are developing a more detailed agenda with the intent to publish our goals towards the fall timeframe of this year. Now, this is the part where I get self-conscious because I always ask the doom and gloom questions. <laughs> the tragedy <laughs> go well and the go. How did, go I know, well right? and go. She can find the cloud with any silver lining. I can. I really can. <laughs> Ellen is such a sunny person. and I'm. But I, I do worry. I, when I'm thinking about what it means to work in a public place like a store, like any store, but particularly one where people really need the stuff in there, like food and water and all that kind of stuff, and the public comes in. 
it forces leaders and it forces people on the floor to sometimes confront some tough issues. I'll give you an example. Chip Berg at, at Levi's had to make a decision about guns in their stores because a gun discharged once. And it turned like all of a sudden he's the poster CEO for gun discussions, which was not maybe necessarily exactly what he intended to weigh in on guns, but he wanted to weigh in on safety in the stores. So here we are in the middle of this pandemic and people are fighting about crazy things like masks and vaccines and they need the stuff that's in the stores. And I'm wondering two things. One, how were you able to help your frontline employees expect or manage or defuse any kind of conflict that might be coming at them that's new? And then how do you decide when to weigh in on something that's really important that you need to take it to the CEO speaks to the world level? That wasn't that bad, Alan. That wasn't no, that bad. No, no, no. I like that question. <laughs> I might have asked that myself. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you the mask issue was a very difficult issue, Alan, yeah. now, because there was no national perspective on it. There were local right. perspectives, and the local perspectives kept changing. Became very political. It became very political. So when it came to our associates, the principle was safety. It was always about safety of our associates and the safety of our customers. And so all our associates... All of us wore masks in our stores, in our offices, et cetera. When it came to customers, where it was mandated, we requested it be mandated. But, you know, there have been so many confrontations where I have had a store director's jaw broken by somebody <gasps> who did not, literally, I punched, broke the jaw because the person, the store director took a mask and offered it to this individual. And that's where I draw the line. You know, I draw the line where, if somebody is going to get confrontational, I lean towards the safety of our associates. By and large, though, you know, while you hear these stories, by and large, 99% of the people who walked in our stores complied, and even today comply, right? So I don't want to exaggerate the problem. For the most part, it was fine. Now, on issues that we talk about, you know, I'm a firm believer that, look, most people are not going to care about most things I say, Ellen. <laughs> I hope that's not true. <laughs> we wait, have a big audience. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, we invited you on this podcast. <laughs> no, 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 podcast. we're hanging on every word. <laughs> I know. But Ellen, Ellen, but there's a large segment of people, those 30 million customers who walk through our doors every week and 300,000 associates who care a lot about what we do, not what we say. And that's important to me. It's an important distinction. And whether that comes to what we talk about when it's supporting uh, issues on racial tension, uh, supporting issues on voting rights. I'll give you an example. You know what I'd like? You know, the best way to provide voting access is to have machines in our stores. And guess what? We did in Texas. Hmm. Yeah. That's something we can do. I, I'd rather not talk about it. I'd provide a machine in our store. And we yeah. had it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think we as CEOs can make a big difference in pockets that we influence by doing things. Yeah. Go a little deeper on that. I mean, you're a member of the Fortune CEO Initiative, which, as you know, is a community of CEOs who are really trying to think about how they can have an impact on some of these social issues. And there is a bit of a pushback these days. You can see it on the editorial pages of The Wall Street Journal attacking woke CEOs. You know, stay away from voting. You know, that's political. That's not your area. Let the politicians decide. First of all, why do you do it? Give us the reasons behind it. And second, how do you do it in a way that makes sense for the brand and doesn't get you caught up in pointless squabbles or get your store owners uh, or store managers' jaws broken? The question on how do we do it, we always begin with what's right for the values of our company. 
You know, to me, that is an obligation I have. It's not a choice. On things that are right for the value system that we cherish in our company, I have to speak out about it. I have to make sure that our 300,000 people know that we value it. Every time something happens outside of our company, it's important for me to reinforce and our leadership to reinforce that. On what we do externally outside the boundaries of our company, if you can call it, those are places where when it's synchronous with the values of our company, I have complete comfort in speaking out about it, right? When George Floyd was murdered, it was clear we had to talk about it. We had to talk about taking those issues seriously, but then we also had to do something about it. And it elevated Alan. You know, for us, I think the difference internally in the company on DE&I is I personally, my personal journey. I took Frito-Lay over in 2016. I don't know if you recall, 2016 was a difficult year yes. now for, yes. with a lot of police shootings and yes. police being shot in Dallas and so on and so forth. And there was a journey I went through where I would get passionate about these issues around episodes. I think right. 2020 changed that for me. It's gone from, you know, I, 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 it's terrible. I should stop first. I shouldn't be episodic about this. Right. I need to make this a commitment. I need to problem solve it like I'm problem solving other aspects of the business. And that's how I take it now. It's part of our program. It's part of the problem solving of the company, much like I problem solve a supply chain issue. But that's a big change, Vivek. I mean, you can go back as recently as 2014 when Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri. There were no CEOs speaking out. There, there were, nobody said anything. Something in your world has changed pretty dramatically in that fairly short period of time in terms of feeling compelled to speak out on those kinds of issues. I don't know what it is, Alan, but you know, there were things stacking on top of the other in 2020. We were managing this pandemic. Then on top of that, you had this racial tension. Things were just stacking up. And maybe a lot of us felt we've got to start mm. making a difference and voicing an opinion. But I have to, I can only speak personally, but for me, I think 2020 was a year where I realized personally that I was being episodic. Mm -hmm. As well as I thought I was doing, I was being episodic on those issues. That's a very powerful distinction. And I do think that we were one degree below boiling for so long. And for whatever reason, I think probably looking back in history, we can identify some key inflection points, but it just became a no tolerance situation. When you have, you know, as we saw, when you have people peacefully and safely going out into the streets to protest during a pandemic, you know that we have reached the boiling point. That is true. I mean, think about the emotional weight people must have had to do that, right? Yeah. And we knew they were putting, putting each other at risk. How much of it is for your employees? A, a big part of it is. I mean, to me, it's not just our employees, but we also want to make sure that we can extend that same respect and dignity for everybody walking through our stores and the communities we operate in. So our sphere of influence is bigger than just our 300,000 people. And that, that's part of the journey we're going through. So what happens from here, Vivek? Give us a sense of what the next 10 years looks like for your company and for the grocery business. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's easy, Alan, just a 10-year roadmap. <laughs> yeah, sure. That's why we call it Leadership Next. <laughs> That's right. uh, look, I, I think it's a, a fascinating time. I believe in a couple of things. One is the use you asked me earlier about online and e-commerce. And I think you're going to find 
that continuing to evolve in so many different ways to bring convenience to customers right around their grocery. But we're also learning um, that stores still matter. There's mm. no question about it, whether it's us yeah. or you can look at many other retailers, stores still matter. And yeah. I think it's that combination. And, and we're all going to try to figure out what that right combination of assets is to make a difference and give customers an experience that's both delightful and experiential and hedonistic when they need it. Our company, I feel really good about. We keep layering on capabilities on this foundation that we began about a couple of years ago. It's like climbing a staircase. Every time you get to a landing, your vision gets better. Mm. You know, we hit our first landing and we're going, okay, we're past the pandemic, the first landing, we feel good about where we are. And we are talking about a lot of what's next and pivoting our thinking much more to what matters to the customer and thinking less and less about, oh, we're a grocery store. Mm. Um, and yeah. that opens up a range of possibilities. Vivek, we're lucky that you ended up in the grocery business. Thank you for everything you've done through the pandemic and thanks for taking time to talk to us. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Alan. Totally enjoyed this. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. I have one last question for you. Yeah. You see that stuffed fish behind <laughs> Ellen's it. head? What do you think of that? I, I know. <laughs> I mean, this is a podcast and, and our listeners can't actually see it, which is a shame. But doesn't it throw you off a little bit to see a stuffed fish there behind Ellen's head? If she had caught it, I think it would occupy, <laughs> if she had caught it, it would have occupied a horizontal spot I behind know. her head. If I had caught it, I would have been too busy to take this call. I'll tell you that. I'd be taking like one victory lap after another. <laughs> Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 